Hello, everyone. Whatever time zones you may be finding yourselves in, welcome to this CMMC series. Allow me to set the scene for this webinar, please. This webinar is being recorded now. Today, we kick off the first of five-part webinar series taking a closer look into the 17 domains of the CMMC framework. This experience is far better if everyone, when it's interactive. So if you're presentable, and even if you're not, jammies and cosplay outfits welcome, please turn on your cameras, and otherwise it ends up being a one-way presentation and not a two-way conversation. There's gonna be no sales pitch today. Our agenda is purely to share essential knowledge, insight, and maybe bring a little fun to a pretty dry topic. The questions are at Slido. You'll see that in the chat room. Um, you can go over there and, and look at those. Uh, let me take a few moments to introduce our panelists and then we'll get started. First off, we have Amira Armand. Uh, she is the owner of Carry Solutions LLC in Maryland, a company which provides IT services and cybersecurity consulting. She's currently an RP, a CISSP, a CISA, MCSE, PMP, and MBA. Uh, Amira supported the US Navy and DISA security networks for 16 years before starting Care Solutions in 2015. During her time with the Defense Department, Amira designed and managed critical military networks, integrated a new hospital system for US Navy used on all ships and deployed hospitals, led change management for NMCI, a 1 million seat network used by the Navy and Marine Corps and architected a worldwide security cloud services solutions for DISA. Welcome Amira, thank you. Next, we have Kyle Lai, founder and CISO of KLC Consulting. Certifications include CISSP, CSSLP, CISA, CIPPUS, CIPPG, CDPSE, ISO 27001 lead auditor. Currently resides in Houston, Texas with over 25 years experience in the industry. Kyle has been a CISO, a senior leadership, security advisor management and other technical hands-on security roles. Kyle has helped clients, including but not limited to DISA, Army, Navy, USPTO, VA, NIH, Duncan Brands, Boeing, Cigna, Akamai, ExxonMobil, Fidelity Investments, Royal Bank of Scotland, and Zoom. Kyle helps companies as a virtual CISO, achieving compliance across many regulations, including CMMC. Thank you for joining us today, Kyle. Thank you. Next, we have Matt Titcomb. He is the CEO at Peak InfoSec, residing in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He's also serving as a CISO at Gig IT and a CISO at Safe, Safe Aeon. Mike's certifications include CMMC Provisional Assessor and, a and CISSP, among a host of other certifications and training he, um, he received while serving in the United States Air Force. Mike joins us with over 25 years in InfoSec and a veteran. Thank you for your service, Mike, and welcome. Last but not least, our host for today, our very own Mike Pedrick, CISO and VP of Consulting at Stealth Group, joining us from Denver, Colorado. Mike's certifications include CISSP, CCSP, CISM, CRISC, with over 16 years uh, um, in both cybersecurity and IT. Mike currently serves as local ISACA chapter as a coordinator mentor for um, students studying for classes on certifications. Without further ado, I'd like to hand it over to Mike Pedrick. Thank you, David. Um, everybody, thank you for attending. Uh, I'll just talk through some quick logistics and I'll start out by saying that I'm 
ex extremely honored and proud to be sharing screen time with our esteemed guests, panelists, et cetera. Uh, you guys are, are fantastic bastions of, of professional uh, capability in this space. And again, I, I couldn't be more proud to be sharing this time with you all. In terms of logistics, what we're going to do is talk through uh, the domains, uh, five of the 17 domains of the CMMC standard. I want to keep this relatively conversational, but at the beginning of each of the, the domain sections, I'll throw something up on the screen to talk through, you know, some of the, the procedures that you're going to be wanting to understand and have clarity on. And then, of course, some of the, the concepts and controls that you might be expecting to implement in each of those, uh, each of those practice areas. And so as much as anything else, I wanna make sure this is a dialogue. I wanna give you guys ample opportunity to uh, contribute to your, you know, from the perspective of your experiences in this area, uh, your interpretation of the CMMC standard, uh, so on and, and, and so forth. I know you guys have a, a wealth of experience in this area. Uh, in generalized terms, we have approximately an hour and about 52 minutes left. And I want to make sure that we have time to address uh, any questions that come up during the course of, of our discussion. And so I'm going to try to keep our uh, discussions per practice area crisp, uh, brief. Um, if I feel like we're, we're going a little bit long, I might, um, I, I might interject and say, let's move to the next domain. Uh, we also have our Slido uh, page up and running, which is, uh, I'll make sure the link is available in the chat window for this Zoom meeting. You can visit that page, you can submit your questions, uh, just type them up there as brief or as verbose as you feel like being. And after we get through our domain discussions, we will make sure that we go uh, to that Slido page and discuss any of the more pertinent questions, questions that we see on that page. Uh, this is intended to be informational and in nature. There is no sales pitch here. There's not uh, you know, a full court press from a sales perspective or sales and marketing perspective. This is a uh, educational discussion. So uh, with that, what I'm going to do is uh, pull up some, some slides. We're gonna be talking about five practice areas today. We're gonna be talking about um, access control, identity and um, authentication. Uh, identification and authentication. We're going to be talking about physical protection, personnel security, and awareness and training. Now, this is five of the, the 17 practice areas for the CMMC. We are focusing principally on uh, level three. Level three compliance is going to be our target here. So if you're unfamiliar, the, the notion of the CMMC is it's very similar in, in intent and in structure to the 800 Dash 171 uh, NIST standard from, from before that we should theoretically all have experience with for a couple of years now. Uh, but it kind of melds concepts from the capability maturity model. And so uh, again, we're going to be targeting that level three perspective. Levels four and five are sort of lofty, uh, lofty goals for a lot of organizations. And so we're not going to be focused on that too much. And again, in relatively generalized terms, level three is the target for organizations that are handling uh, CUI specifically. So with that, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen and let's make sure I do this correctly because that might get embarrassing. All right. 
So first and foremost, just to lay the groundwork for this aspect of the conversation, access controls, the something that's relatively new conceptually is the notion of the 999 policy document, the 998 process documentation, and the 997 plan documentation. There's been a lot of buzz and a lot of questions uh, from the business perspective of, you know, what are these, right? And in theory, uh, we're not generally new to the concept of everything that we do for governance, for risk, for cybersecurity, et cetera, follows a, a certain order, a certain process order, right? I craft a policy as an organization. I craft the, the policy which outlines my expectations. This is what I expect of my, my staff, my associates, my vendors. Uh, and then uh, here's the process by which I'm going to follow or, or abide by that policy, adhere to that policy. And then, you know, here's the, the concept of the plan. And after that, uh, I structure my controls and my controls objectives along, you know, those, those same lines. Um, so the big difference between 800-171 and CMMC in this capacity is that, uh, you know, you have to show your work. There has to be some, some documentation and an extensive amount of documentation to, to show that this is what you were saying you were doing and then prove out that this is what you're doing, right? Uh, so in terms of access controls, and forgive me, what's not on the screen here is the, you know, the actual verbiage for the CMMC standard, but things you're gonna wanna take a look at, you're gonna have a, a, a good you know, amount of attention, pay a good amount of attention to your onboarding and offboarding processes. Uh, you, the, the concept of least privilege, for anybody who's unclear about least privilege, the notion there is that uh, for every authenticated user, for every individual in your organization, they only have access to those systems and data sets that they need to perform their job role, which of course is predicated on the notion that their job role has been properly defined. Um, consider that step zero. Uh, separation of duties, which is a, a control vector that is intended to prevent a single or small group of a single individual or a small group of individuals from performing a process from start to finish in such a way as to um, you know, cause harm or, you know, financial harm or material harm to the organization or the process um, without, you know, notice, without being identified, right, or that we have an opportunity to stop that. Uh, of course, activity long review, continuous monitoring, these are going to be processes that are consistent through each or many of the domains in the CMMC, and just a good, you know, risk management protocol in general. Uh, and again, it's pursuant to the notion that if you see something going sideways, you see something going wrong, that you have an opportunity to stop it uh, before things get really painful or really uncomfortable. Uh, and then in terms of controls, we're going to be looking for things like modern authentication. We're going to be talking about, uh, you know, FIPS compliant. This is important. FIPS compliant encryption, mobile device management, and multi-factor authentication. I'm sorry, was there a question? Okay. Uh, all right. So with that, let's let's open up the floor. I'm going to take this back down and and you know take this away from your focus for a second, and uh, let's talk about um, the access control domain. And panelists, I'll give you guys you know ample opportunity if you want to jump in and and share your your thoughts on this particular domain. What's your what your experiences have been, et cetera. 
So I guess I'll, I'll jump in. Um, this is Amira. Uh, so in access control, there's, there's two things that I see companies misunderstanding repeatedly. Um, the first one is the, uh, the principle of least privilege and it, it also relates to separating user functionality from privilege functionality. Um, and one of the very best things you can do immediately is to have separate accounts uh, for your privilege functions and for your user functions. In fact, uh, the standard should be that, you know, everyone in your organization gets a user account, which can only do user stuff. And then your, your admins, your privileged people get another account or maybe even more than one account, uh, which is only used for privilege functions. So they should never ever be checking their email, um, browsing the internet, uh, doing regular office work with their privileged account. Um, and you should actually be monitoring that by, you know, checking in on logs and seeing if, um, say, for example, uh, Chrome web browser is started by a privileged account. Um, the second thing I see a lot that's done incorrectly, and this is actually relevant for level one, too. Uh, by the way, we have very limited hosts on this meeting. Um, so. I see a couple of people that are participants that are not muted and uh, we're hearing a lot of feedback from you. So could you please mute yourself? Um, okay, so authorized AC1001, the very, very first requirement in CMMC. Uh, a lot of people think that you should just point at your Active Directory and say, if the account exists in there, it's authorized. And that is not going to fly with assessors. Um, and uh, so you need to show how you are uh, authorizing those accounts in a way that is separate from just showing that the account exists, right? Because if a bad guy gets into the system, they might create an account. And are you really going to go to the, the assessor and say, hey, this bad guy account here, it exists, therefore it must be authorized, right? No. Uh, so have a separate mechanism, you know, records, approvals, activity logs, something uh, that shows that you do approve that user to have the account, those rights. Uh, and I'll pass it over to the rest. If, if I may, Amira, I'm, I'm sorry, I just want to jump in here and say, I uh, want to support your first point, uh, the difference between uh, administrative accounts and normal accounts, privileged accounts and, and normal accounts, right? Uh, I, I seriously have had that conversation multiple times with clients that believe that their position within the organization dictates the level of access and level of privilege that their accounts have, and that they can sort of wear that, that cloak of, of uh, authority within the environment, regardless of what they're doing. So I really appreciate you touching on that point. And I'm sorry to whomever I step in front of. Go ahead. Uh, that's all right. I'll get you later. Okay, uh, that's fine. This is Matt. So just to just to expand on what Amira said, and this is one of the things we run into a lot, the majority of the controls that are actually in the access control domain are organizational in, in nature. They're not technical. The technical part's actually done in the identity and authentication domain. But as Amira said, authorizing somebody 
starts actually in the onboarding, the hiring, the contracting in process. You're making decisions about authorizing then. Then it flows into technical system access. But also remember that authorization now impacts physical security and lots of other areas. So again, don't just focus on the technical side. You've got to understand the entire business process of how you're authorizing, how you're granting permissions, what types of permissions, and then what roles you're giving the per person. And even as you get into this, there's even technical requirements at the assessment objective within how have you identified your access points for your wireless side? You have to identify them. They're just not suddenly added in. So be ready to track and look at everything, especially in that access control domain from a management point of view. Yeah, no, th these are great comments. Um, I just have a couple of points to add is that access and uh, identity, I think they go hand in hand because um, identity you have to, uh, you know, we are going to talk about identity and authentication um, a little bit later, but um, yeah, unless you have an identity, you understand which role and responsibility they have, you assign the right access. And the uh, second thing is that, yeah, you probably want to kind of uh, keep your eyes, you know, do the audit in terms of the account. For example, Mike saying like, hey, if there is an account that's been, been created by the hacker, well, you know, or, or probably Amira was saying, right? So if there is an account, you probably want to do some kind of an audit or detection to say there is an account that's been created, is actually been created or uh, and assigned some privilege, is that actually valid, right? So you want to actually do some kind of a access control review um, periodically just to make sure that, that people move, yeah, people actually you know, in the medium size or larger companies, people do transfer from department to department. Do you actually get rid of the previous access, right? So these are the, some of the things that you probably want to consider uh, when you're doing the access control. One thing that I think, um, I, and for what it's worth uh, team, we can jump right into identification and authentication if you'd like. Uh, I do have them grouped together for the session and they're pretty complementary to each other, which is fantastic. But one thing I would say in generalized terms for folks who are you know, subject to audit and especially CMMC, but really just subject to audit in general is you should have the expectation that an auditor or an assessor is gonna you know, throw the dart at the wall, so to speak, pick a, a, an account at random and say, who is this? What is this person's role within the organization? And why do they have the access that they have? And the story that you're going to tell from there dictates whether or not that's a finding or a footnote, right? And they move on to the next thing. Because if your answer in that moment is, I don't know who that is. I don't know where that account came from. I have no idea why they're a member of the domain administrators group. Um, you're gonna have a bad day. So, uh, so uh, Matt, Kyle, Amira, let's let's go ahead and do that. Let's jump to identification and authentication. Now we've talked about um, onboarding and offboarding and the importance of those processes. And again, being able to you know document who are we bringing on, what a, what level of access are we giving them, for what purpose, and of course tracking changes when somebody transitions from one uh, area to another within the organization. 
Now, one thing that is that is called out also as a requirement is the concept of uh, temporary passwords and, and relay of those passwords and protocols associated with passwords. I'd like to have you guys discuss that, um, you know, expand on that point for us. Let's talk through temporary password relay and jump ball. Anybody who wants to speak to that? I guess we'll, we'll go through the same process. So before I jump into that, somebody did ask on Sledo about the, uh, the publication review procedure. Um, you know, what does that mean? Uh, can administrative controls be used for it or does it need to be technical? Um, so there's, there's actually two requirements in CMMC level three um, about that. One, one is AC1004 and then one is in the system and communications domain, I believe, uh, which basically says, tell people not to post stuff on Twitter and Facebook. Um, so regarding AC1004 publication, uh, look at the assessment objectives. It says very clearly procedure. Um, you know, and make sure your people know uh, that procedure, the procedure identifies who's allowed to post, who needs to review, um, and it can be a one-page procedure, right? But make sure that you can show proof to your assessor that when you post something on your corporate website, that somebody else has reviewed it for FCI and CUI, right? And that proof can be simply an email message, you know, hey, Joe, can you double check this before I post it? Yeah, I looked at it, it's fine, right? Just have that record. Uh, so sorry, going back to IA, uh, temporary passwords um, have a procedure, right? Uh, have, a, have a policy or a control that says, hey, help desk, when you set a person's account up, put the little check in the box that says, make the user change their password on first logon. That's pretty straightforward, sure. I think. So how do you feel, I suppose, we're seeing a proliferation of self-service password reset implementations, right? Especially through Microsoft 365. How do you feel about self-service password reset tools and forgot password tools, et cetera? I know what my thoughts are, and I, I suppose I'm driving us there. Is how do you feel about that relative to having a process where somebody has to dial into a qualified service desk or something along that line to um, get password resets completed? I mean, to me, the, the Microsoft password reset fundamentally also depends upon MFA. You have to have the physical device that they're going to send you the token to to validate against the secondary controls you've already set previously. So you, is it a perfect solution? No. Um, having somebody call into a help desk also causes other problems. And when we hit this one, we also recommend some best practices. I, if I'm hearing a baby crying in the background, it's most likely a phishing attack, I'm sorry to say. Uh, if humans react very emotionally and compassionate and are willing to give over information when babies are in the background, it's really kind of those things that hackers will use. We recommend actually, if, I, if you were to call my help desk, I would say, okay, Mike, I'm going to call you back. Where are you at? You had your cell phone number home right now. 
So again, I'm re-verifying back. I'm not just trusting because I really don't know it's you on the other end of the line. So there's a re-verification back. Again, that's a part of that practice when you've got to change somebody's password and you need to verify, especially when people aren't in front of you anymore. You know, those are some of the things that you've got to think through in the procedure for doing this of how you're going to allow that temporary password to be given to them. I like it. And in theory, if that's your, not in theory, in practice, if that's your protocol, if that's the process that your service desk goes through, that would be outlined in your procedure document that you would be mm -hmm. then submitting as evidence that this is what we do uh, to meet the standard. Yes. Uh, Kyle, I think you had something you wanted to say as well. No, I think as long as that we can actually show, uh, I think uh, Matt actually uh, covered quite a bit, um, but I think as long as we can actually show that there is a trace and uh, you know we can prove that, that it is, um, you know, going back to the audit trail, right? We have the, the person actually, uh, I like the self-reset self, uh, because it just uh, save a lot of cost. But um, yeah, as long as you can just have a you know multi-factor authentication, for example, not just anyone can just try to reset anyone's password. Yeah, that if you can have those type of uh, layer of def uh, security controls in place, yeah, I think that's all that's all good in my opinion. Um, yeah, I think as we go into the identity, yeah, there. Are, you know, multi-factor authentication, as I see, it's actually one of the area that's a little bit more challenging for companies. Um, privilege accounts, a lot of time, I think it's a lot easier, but when you get into some of the systems or especially like legacy systems, uh, they don't, they usually don't have the capability of getting into the multi-factor authentication. So, um, so I think that would be a little bit challenging for some of the companies in those scenarios. So I think there are probably some other solutions that we can actually uh, come up or if there are some alternative uh, solutions that we can actually look into. Um, I did see a, a Sledo question about um, one of the IA items. I, I believe it was obscure feedback of authentication information. Um, and uh, so that that one um, is it's it's funny. That's actually probably from back in like 1970, right? Like like half of the CMMC requirements um, when occasionally you could type a password and there wasn't an asterisk, right? Where you could actually see the password as you typed it. Uh, so basically, every modern system uh, covers the password by default. You just need to double check that it does. Yeah, and, and Amira, typically our answer on that one, likewise, if it's a COTS product, we know they're going to meet that. When the organization starts to get into that custom-developed internal enterprise use software, this now becomes a requirement that's got to be checked against all of that software that's in use, is that that password is being obfuscated. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so it's... From my perspective, some of this conversation, um, like I see a question, you know, how do you distribute temporary passwords? Um, we have to be careful not to read too much into the CMMC requirements. 
So CMMC does not talk about self-service password reset at all, right? That that might be covered under situational awareness or you know uh, having good policies and procedures or being smart, uh, but it's not doesn't say you you must or must not use self-service password reset um, or you know uh, help people onboard in a certain way. So you know the assessors, the good assessors are going to be very careful about uh, understanding what the minimum requirement is and not asking for more than that uh, because the minimum requirement is very hard to do. All right, so we don't need to make it harder on ourselves. Absolutely. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you for that. I think there is a, a, a tremendous opportunity for a lot of these things for people who have been who the majority of their careers have been from the control perspective, right? We implement a thing because we're supposed to implement a thing, right? Especially the, the, the technologists, the folks who have been ensconced in the technology. It's, it's easy to lose sight of um, where the goalpost is, right? Here, here's what our goal is. Our goal is to meet the, the requirement, how we got there or how strong that particular control is, how resilient that control is, is a, is a secondary consideration um, or a different consideration. So. Uh, with that, um, we're half past the hour. I'm going to jump to physical protection and personnel security. And the thing that I want to, uh, I guess, start out with there is these are actually some of the more mercifully brief uh, sections of the CMMC standard, right? There's not a whole lot that, uh, there's not a whole lot of line items in this particular area. And the assessment guidance is, you know, again, mercifully brief. But it touches on things like, you know, hold a, you know, have physical access controls, prudent physical access controls, uh, surveillance is, uh, is implied. Um, and then obviously uh, understand, you know, who the, the comings and goings, who's in your facility at any time. Keep a, a, a tracking log of folks who are coming and going from your facility. So I guess I'll, I'll start with a, a question. Um, from your perspective, how much, you know, especially today, as things have changed over the last couple of years, how much emphasis do you think there should be on physical protection and uh, personal security in this space? What's our gap? What are we missing? The thing that's probably missing the most that I run into, home offices. If if your home office is not your alternate location, it is in scope. And you're required to meet commensurate, you know, as Amira said, equivalent level protections. If that's your full-time place of work and you're discussing CUI and everything else, you should be able to meet all the requirements there. Now, there's a lot of ways to handle that, but again, those full-time remote employees you need to think about them and how you're going to apply those principles. The acquisition toolbox does give us some leeway and the DOD guidance on alternate work sites as they had to deal with COVID also gives us some guidance. Um, but definitely don't ignore your full-time remote workers who never come into your office. Yeah, I, I know as I talk with customers that there, there are smaller companies that, that provide kind of like audit services or financial services for different aspects in the DOD. And they may have, you know, seven employees, they're all working from home on laptops and they may have another 10 contractors all on laptops and they really don't have a network. They don't have a SIM, they don't have 
you know, how do they meet those compliances? It's, it's, it's a challenge. So actually, just to expand on that, what is the, I suppose, what is the suggestion, right? We, we've, had, we've had dialogues internally and with clients on what is, you know, where is that threshold of prudence, right? Uh, try not to work from the dining room table if there's a room available, um, you know, make sure that, you know, the clean desk policy sort of applies. Um, what do you guys suggest for work from home for addressing that particular, that particular ask? I mean, one of the things I always tell people is always just think about even this conversation. If we were discussing CUI, I can't have this conversation in an open area where other parts of my family are around. They don't have a need to know. And they don't meet the definition of the requirements in 32 CFR. So you are looking to have to close off some door, some area, provide protections you know, so that way it's not easily uh, overheard or, you know, listened in on. Most family members don't care and don't want to listen, but again, you've got to provide those protections. Um, things like how did, what if somebody prints at home and it's CUI? Are you going to issue them a shredder or what if they've got USB sticks? All those other things, you, you've got to look at the whole aspect as if that home office is a micro business. How do you want to go? Yeah, I, I think I agree with Matt. I think we just need to make sure that, you know, for example, you have a wireless network. You actually share this wireless network with your, um, you know, TV downstairs, right? So, yeah, so I, I think these, when you are designing the home network, uh, you know, home, not just the home network, but home office, right? You have to make sure that you think through some of these, um, you know, have a door, uh, something secure. I, I recall there was a Twitter from, I think it was the nuclear defense. Uh, I, I don't remember which person, but that was the person for the nuclear, the agency that actually handled the nuclear, right? Suddenly the Twitter accounts from this uh, government agency start typing out this uh, gibberish, uh, letter. They thought it was like a new nuclear launch code or something, but it was actually the the daughter, right, two year old daughter of this uh, guy, actually went in and uh, typed something on his keyboard, touched something on his keyboard, and uh, later you have to clarify. It's like, yeah, this is nothing, but everybody's like start wondering, right, what's going on. So I think this is uh, some kind of a reminder that yeah, we probably have to have you know keep some uh, at least have a door if you are not in the office, close the door, you know, screensaver, we have the screensaver automatically locked, for example, just uh, think through something that you, you know, when you're working from home. So if, um, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, a, of a disagreeer here, uh, but I don't know if I'm right, is the problem, right? So none of us have, have gotten our CMMC level three uh, certifications yet. Um, I can tell you that I have talked to uh, companies that have been through 800-171 assessments by DIBCAC and DIBCAC never uh, went to a home worker's house to inspect their house. Um, however, uh, you know, it seems like um, DIBCAC has, uh, for CMMC especially, um, they don't seem to want to assess companies like C3PAOs that are going through it, like 
like our companies uh, that have data center equipment in their house. Um, they, they don't seem to be good with that. And so I, I try and watch the precedents, right? And the only precedent we have right now is what uh, DIBCAC, the, the Defense Contract Management Agency, which is assessing 8171 and uh, CMC against C3PAOs is doing. They don't seem to care about home users, but they do care if there is uh, physical equipment, um, you know, servers, networking gear, uh, in scope, um, and that's that's very tricky, right? So uh, there there's absolutely a need for users to be able to go on the road with a laptop, right? The DoD does it. Everybody does it, right? Sometimes you you have to go on site, uh, and they can't just say that's not allowed, right? Because the defense industrial base will stop at that point. Um, so we've got to. I think we have to come to a to a medium solution and watch that precedent as it's built. So, um, Amir, in the use case you just described, falls underneath the alternate work locations. So when you're traveling, for example, uh, you should have defined procedures and requirements for somebody who is working at an alternate work location that is not the office. The challenge becomes what happens when you've got somebody that is a hundreds of miles away from the office, they're doing full-time engineering CUI work on their environment there at their home office, storing, printing, having phone calls, everything else, that's no longer an alternate location. Right, you, you, it's, it's probably a very bad idea to have a work network at a house. It, and as Kyle said, it's, you know, it's very common amongst the small businesses to have, and even with large ones, I've got one very large client that's got two remote users full-time hundreds of miles from their offices. And we're now having to figure out, okay, we're going to need to put a firewall in. We're going to need, as Kyle said, you can't have that device permanently sitting next to Johnny's PC that has no controls on it, they can be attacking it because it gets compromised. So how do you put a boundary in there? How, how do we address all these things? And yeah, it's kind of a, it's an ugly area, but it's one that is hopefully DOD, I don't expect, will clarify, so. It's, it's fundamentally, we're hitting up against some of the same struggle, right, that businesses have struggled with cell phones for so long, right? By the time I ask you to use your cell phone for work purposes, now I have to, if there's a implied, if not inferred obligation on the part of the organization to pay for that, for that thing, right? For that, for that phone, for the service, etc. So when we start talking about walling off portions of employees' homes, their networks, etc., you know, again, there's going to be questions about uh, financial obligations, you know, the, the, the practicality of imposing, you know, enterprise grade networking in somebody's home. Um, and if it's not a home, if, if it's a rental situation, you know, what are we doing with that? So there's going to be a lot of questions on this, I think, as, as we move forward. And uh, Amira, thank you for pointing out that this is, you know, a, a fluid situation. It's not as as hard and fast as we feel like we'd like it to be. Um, 
from an assessment perspective. So um, I wanna really quick, the, the final domain or practice area that we wanted to talk about today was awareness and training, which I think is, is still a fairly, uh, that, that's a core requirement, right? We believe as, a, as an industry or we gen generally believe that user awareness, user understanding of the threat landscape and our policy expectations is paramount from a risk management perspective. Uh, we believe, I think, you know, some more than others that users are our greatest threat, uh, but also potentially our greatest uh, assets. Uh, if they're, you know, properly suspicious and, and aware of what's going on, they can uh, uh, make us aware of things that are happening before our some of our other tool sets will. So um, again, through the lens of the CMMC, uh, what are your thoughts? Let's talk through what the, the expectations are from an awareness training perspective. And Kyle, I'm yeah. gonna go ahead. Uh, so of course you have to have training, right? There's, there's free resources uh, which meet the CMMC level three training. Um, but the thing that I want to bring up is a lot of people want to address CMMC using administrative controls, okay? Administrative means you have a policy, you told somebody not to do something, right? Don't, don't install malware on your computer. Therefore, we don't need antivirus, right? Um, and that's not a great approach, right? There's, there are places where it makes sense uh, but you have to understand when to use administrative controls versus technical controls. And uh, something that I advocate when you're thinking about it is to think about whether that action is a common user misbehavior. Okay, so uh, common user misbehaviors are things like putting crappy passwords in um, or taking their home thumb drive and plugging it into their computer because they have to get work and their work computer is really slow, right? They're trying to be a good person. They're trying to be a good worker. They're trying to get work done, right? So they're like, eh, you know, I'm a good person. I'm gonna avoid this, this thing that tells me not to do it because I'm a good person. I'm trying to do a good job for the company, right? Those are, that stuff, those, those, those things that users do to actually be a good worker are common user misbehaviors. And you want to put technical controls into place against those wherever possible. Um, so just that's, that's my input, I'll pass it on. Yeah, technical control is definitely better than the administrative control. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree with Amira. And I think from the training, I can see th these are going to be role. I think there are going to be training. There are more gener gen for general user. Uh, there are going to be training. There are more specific for IT, right? So IT tends to have to get, get to do more. Uh, if, for example, if there's an incident, right, what do you do? IT actually will take on more responsibility. They have to follow the procedure, but they have to be trained on what needs to be done. You know, in what situation do you declare incident, for example? Um, yeah, I mean, you can buy the training, right? But uh, you, or develop the training. A lot of the smaller businesses, I know. Okay, have a great day.
<laughs> I know those smaller businesses, they purchase the, um, uh, some of the training and they're just like, yeah, everybody can take on training, but there, there are still, I still see there's a lacking in terms of like, so what are the requirements? Um, so I know there, there are, there, there is actually a, a, a training that was developed by DOD. Um, I think it was uh, public.cyber.mil, right? Um, they actually have uh, quite a bit of uh, training, uh, cybersecurity awareness training. There's the uh, insider threats that's included in that training, right? There's a social networking training. Uh, I mean, there are quite a bit of training and they're all free. So those are some of the, the resources that we can actually take if you are just in the midst of like, hey, there is no training available for my uh, for my employees, for my staff, yeah, I will recommend just to go take a look, you know, make sure your your staff can actually use some of these uh, like cyber cyber awareness challenge. I think that was the that was the training that's available that will actually cover a lot of the bases already. While you develop your own training, cover some of the policy procedures, you know, that is have to be trained additional on top of the uh, those training, right? Make sure that your user understanding the policy and procedures, those are additional training that you can do. So I highly recommend that those uh, training developed by the DOD, th those are really good. Yeah, to, to Kyle's point, even if you go beyond that DOD CUI and you follow that link into the US Gov training, there's insider threat training, uh, you can actually find the DOD annual security awareness training there you can take for free. You can actually meet your core general training requirements using that. Now, that's not going to cover all the training that you need to actually address. There are some little local ones when you actually get into the requirements, but not using a USB device without a known user. Well, you can have that in a policy, but you really have to train somebody on that. So again, that's something you're going to develop some localized training to fill those little bits of gaps that DOD materials aren't necessarily going to provide for you. Yeah, really, it, really, really good stuff. Go and I was just going to say, Mike, it, it really is a cultural thing. So many of us have, have adopted, you know, over the years, well, that's IT pushing this policy that this is something I got to sort of pay attention to versus this is part of my job, no matter what my job is, whether I'm a financial auditor, this is at my core part of my job now. And I think, you know, the training has to get that across to adopt these habits and that cultural change, which I think is the most difficult. Good. Very, very good point. I think also what we're going to want to I guess express, right? We've touched on this point a couple of times during this session, but whatever your process is, whatever your protocol is going to be, you want to make sure that that's documented. If there's a, a recurring cadence, and there should be a recurring cadence, if there's a recurring cadence uh, for awareness training and an expectation of your users on you know, what they're going to consume from a training perspective, that needs to be documented. Uh, and you're going to need to be able to provide evidence of uh, you know, again, attendance, uh, you know, how effective this program has been, et cetera. You're going to want to provide that, that uh, for attestation, which I think is a fairly decent segue. I saw the question in, uh, in our Slido page about um, the plan documents, 997 uh, plan documents. 
Now, you know, again, at the outset, I said, it seems to me that there's a, a good amount of question, a good amount of uh, unknown with association to the, the 999, 998, and 997 uh, documentation component of the, the standard. Um, I, so I just, I wanna spend a couple of minutes. Let's talk through and we'll do it in order. I guess it would be reverse order or numeric order. We'll start with plan documents as the, the, the Slido question suggests. Um, what, what does that look like for the, for the lay person who's new to that concept? What does that plan document need to include? All right, I guess I'm fast. Um, so these, so to give you guys perspective, right, these 999, 998, 997s, um, this is not the Delta 20 for CMMC level three. This is the Delta 71, okay? These process requirements add a huge amount of work to your CMMC compliance compared to 800-171. Um, for the plan, so for all of them, you essentially need to look at the assessment objectives, especially for the policy, the 999 and the 997, the, the plan, okay? Make sure that you have addressed every single assessment objective uh, with a section and relevant text um, in your document because the assessor is going to be basically going down the list going, do they have this? Do they have that? Do they have this? Um, the plan is an executive level plan. That means the person or people who have complete control over this portion of your business that is CMMC level three, right? That should be the person who can hire and fire, set budgets, um, not, not necessarily your IT guy, right? But like the president of the company or the VP in charge of that section of your company. Yeah, so, so that, that is actually, um, I think policy procedure, I think as uh, Amira was saying, um, the plan, the plan itself, sometimes they get into the resource planning and uh, that actually get into the financial and also the resources, how do you hire? Um, and uh, what is the budget for you to actually hire, uh, you know, hire people, hire the right resources? Do you have the budget for your plan to purchase the tools? So some of these, um, I know getting for small businesses, I think it's a little bit hard to plan ahead because uh, you don't really know what you need to get until you need to get it. So I think, yeah, um, but I think that is the kind of the, you know, just of the, the, the purpose of the plan, right? You have to kind of uh, put it together, some kind of a plan or some kind of a, document that you can demonstrate that yeah we do have a plan or even though if the plan is like yeah we have this contingency budget yeah, for us when it came to the resource plan um we just had a conversation with the client late last week about this uh it brings the cfo into scope not that they necessarily have access to cui but what we've seen with dibcac and their audits so far of c3 paos and it kind of makes sense is they would go interview the senior executives about exactly, have you budgeted this? How do you handle this? 
How are you planning and forecasting for this? Um, do you understand your overhead rates? Because this is the hard one that's coming out of the CMMI part, that maturity part. They're really asking, you're certified, but are you really committed to being certified after we leave? And are you funding and committing to do it after we leave? Because in a larger philosophical question meeting we had yesterday with, with a different client was, well, what happens if we're certified and we make a change? As of right now, the guidance we've got, if you make a change to your infrastructure, that's on you to maintain in that time between certification events. And I think that's a part of why they wanna make sure you've got the resources to be able to keep your SIM, to keep all the things going that you're being certified on, even as you may evolve and change and grow between your main certification events. So be ready for that conversation at a more senior level than just your IT guys for this. I think, Matt, you sort of opened the door. Um, and real quick, we've got just a couple of minutes left. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll start drawing things down here. But uh, to your point exactly, a lot of organizations, I think, are waking up to the concept of, of auditing, right, or being audited. And uh, several other organizations, on the other hand, have built, you know, internal audit teams, or they've been subject to you know, PCI, HIPAA, et cetera. So the, the concept of having a team um, hold down a table in a conference room for three months at a time isn't unfamiliar to them, right? And, and people are, you know, picking apart the environment and, and asking questions and interviewing folks. And so I think where I was going with that was you want to start, your first audit is always the one where you're, you're caught off guard. You're a little surprised. You're like, you're asking for what? Like a what you need that really? And then the second audit, and maybe the third audit, uh, you start being prepared. You're prepa prepared to explain or, or tell a story on a thing that occurred nine months and three weeks ago. Uh, and so there's a, a very, there's a stark difference in, you know, in preparedness for organizations that have been subjected to formal audits in the past. Um, all right, so just a couple minutes left. I wanna, I wanna really seriously thank you guys. Uh, there was one other question. I think we'll close this out. Uh, there's a couple of questions in the Slido page about uh, devices in our environment, devices that we have in our environments that don't necessarily have FIPS validation certificates uh, that are, you know, otherwise they serve our purposes, but maybe they don't meet the uh, documentation component. To what extent do we think that's going to be an issue? And I'll set us for a, a two-minute clock. If they store, process, or transmit, in this case, transmit CUI, they would need to be FIPS validated. Now, if you've got a security camera on the outside of your building and you're just monitoring your building with that and it's not a FIPS validated camera, I'm not worried about it. You do have other issues. You need to make sure you're not using you know, various vendors out there, um, but that's not in our scope to actually even worry about that in CMMC. Um, but in general, unless CUI is actually being processed across that, yeah, FIPS is not necessarily, it's good to do, but it's not a mandated requirement. So 
my my take on it is um, as part of CMMC, you should expect to have mapped out every single data flow for the way the CUI can move into, out of, and through your environment, right? You, you do not deserve to be CMMC level three unless you have made these data flow diagrams. Um, and everybody hates to do them, right? And for each of these data flows, you need to figure out how it is being encrypted at FIPS 140-2. It can be done through a software program on your computer, right? Or if it's not done through an application level encryption, uh, then you need to do encryption at the network level, right? So if you've got client server stuff that's not encrypted and you have the client talking to the server across a VPN, you need to make sure that that firewall uh, is FIPS validated, right? But if you can show that every communication path is uh, FIPS 140 validated through your application level encryption, um, say between uh, your web browser on the computer to the SharePoint server, right? Uh, then you do not need to worry about the, the firewall. Okay. Yep, I'll agree. All right. Thank you. Uh, Matt, Kyle, Amira, it has been an absolute pleasure sharing this space with you guys today. Uh, David, thank you for uh, introducing us. And to all of our guests, you know, we really appreciate you attending. Uh, we wouldn't be hosting these if you weren't joining us. So again, this is the first of a series. There will be subsequent webinars covering uh, additional practices within the CMMC. They'll be conducted largely the same. We look forward to seeing you all uh, the next time. Thank you. I hope you have a fantastic day.